to arena craft a magic the gathering podcast dedicated to magic arena pioneer and newer formats my name is arjuna i am your host and i'm coming in solo today it's just it's gonna be an intimate episode with just me i'm gonna be talking about theros draft today so that is the topic And I'm not going to be doing a deep dive and I'm not going to be doing a set review or even like a broad strokes meta archetype review. Uh, There are plenty of other people who have done stuff like that. So, you know, I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel there. What I'm going to do here is share some of my observations about this format and I'm going to cover a list of cards which stand out to me as being a little bit deeper or requiring some discussion or maybe sharing some opinions that might be contrary to what I think of as being the popular belief. So that's what we're going to be focused on today. First, before I get into that, I just wanted to give a big shout out and a warm thanks to Covert Go Blues community. I had him on the show last week. It was a great episode. We had a lot of fun. And uh, we just had a really solid showing for that episode. And so for anyone who is a fan of Covert Go Blue, who discovered this podcast via him, and uh, who's continuing to listen, thanks so much for being here. It's really great to have you. I've discussed maybe doing some more episodes with him in the future. And so hopefully that will come to pass. Uh, Who knows? Don't want to speak for him, of course. Anyway, would love to have him back on. So. Let's just get into it here. So without further ado, Theros Beyond Death draft my opinion so far. The first thing that I want to say about this set is that this set is really big on resource management. And, you know, so Magic is a game of resource management. That's nothing new. But I find that in this set, I spend more time checking and monitoring my various in-game resources than I have in pretty much any other draft set in the past. So what do I mean by this? Let's, let's give an example. Uh, life total, of course, is a resource that you're always paying attention to in Magic. However, I think it's doubly important to pay attention to it in Theros draft, and that is because burn is a thing in this format. And so if you're playing against black, You have to just keep in mind, keep an eye on your life total, and you might want to protect it a little bit more aggressively than you ordinarily would. There's a couple of reasons for that. One card, of course, is Gary, the Grey Merchant of Asphodel. If you have any suspicion that your opponent might have this in their deck, or if you know that they have it in their deck, you're going to want to pay careful attention to how your life total matches up with their devotion to black. So you really don't want to get caught on the wrong side of Gary. The other one is the Lampad. The Black Lampad is just another way that people can easily close out the game. And it's this card especially you need to keep an eye out for because you can kind of get, you can forget about it. Like someone will play the Lampad on turn two. You'll go about your normal game of magic. You'll, You'll trade some attacks. You'll take some damage. You know, you'll add to the board. And it's very easy in this format to get to like a normal mid game and to be a little bored stally 
and to think, yeah, well, I'm fine. You know, I'm at 12 life and, you know, they have seven creatures and things are okay. But you have to remember that if, if an opponent has seven creatures on board with a land pad, your base, you have to be prepared for the fact that you could lose seven life at pretty much any point in the game. So you really need to keep an eye on your life total if you're playing against black. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is is another resource that you really need to pay attention to is the cards in your deck. So again, I can't remember the last time I played a draft format where the number of cards in my deck felt so relevant. This, it, you can deck in this format. It's a thing that happens regularly. I have naturally decked myself multiple times. I've decked a few opponents. It's just really a concern. Um, there's been also a lot of games that I've won with two cards left in my deck or even one card left in my deck. Just very, very narrow margins. So, and there's a couple of reasons for that, of course. One is that this escape, self-mill kind of style of deck is a big thing. So if you're playing the Venomous Hierophant, or you're playing Relentless Pursuit, or even Binding of the Titans... These are all cards that can mill through your deck quite quickly, as well as Skull or Grove Dancer. You know, if you're activating that once or more a turn, that can really work through your deck, put a lot of cards in the graveyard. It's just a very grindy format, and so you might just find yourself, even if you don't have those cards in your deck or if you're not going for that strategy, you might find yourself on a stalled board or top decking or... Maybe you just neither of you have flyers or good attacks. That kind of thing happens a lot in this game, especially as people recur important threats. Also, a lot of the threats that recur are pretty good blockers and perhaps not such good attackers. So, you know, there's just there's a lot of ways in which this format can go long. And so this brings me to my next point, which is you need to have a plan for the long game in this format. So even if you're playing a very aggressive deck, even if the goal of your deck is to get them dead quickly, you still need to have some kind of backup plan in your deck for if the game goes long. And it could be as simple as just getting your Underworld Rage Hounds back. Just, you know, if, if you have a very low curve aggro, aggro deck, then you'll want to make sure that you have at least a couple of those in there. Another card that I've been really enjoying, which I'll talk about a, a bit later, is the Red O-Reed. Let's see, what is it called? O-Reed of Mountain's Blades. Um, this is another card that can really help even a deck that's not really built around card advantage scale into the late game. So you just need to look at your deck and think, if this game goes long, what am I going to do to ensure that I'm getting value out of my cards and not just running out? So it could just be running an extra omen in your deck. Um, it could be running your Lagana Band Storyteller. You know, it could be as simple as putting one of those in your deck. It could be including some of the enchantments that have escaped, like the Sentinel's Eyes, something like that, which on its own, it's not going to carry a game. But it's just a way for you to keep using your mana, keep using the resources that you have and also just to leverage what you have on the board to try to make your game go a little further, last a little longer, be a little more resilient. So anything that you can do to make your deck like that more resilient is going to really pan out in this format. Now, 
you know, you need to strike a balance, of course. Like, for example, some of the green-black decks can be a bit too slow, a little bit too dirtily. Or in blue, you know, you're probably going to want to at some point cap how many Thirst for Meaning you play in a blue deck. Because, you know, you can't just spend the entire game cycling through your deck and not hitting anything, right? So, so th- this brings another point which other people have talked about, which I've also found to be very true, which is that you do need finishes in this format. And I think one of the reasons you need those finishes is because it is so grindy. You have a lot of kind of mid-power level cards that never really push it over the top. And so, you know, you really need a card in your deck, which is prepared to take you all away, something that can really, yeah, just go over the top of your opponent. So a great example of this might be commanding presence. You know, putting commanding presence on a flyer is a really excellent strategy in this format. If you put your commanding presence on top of your 1-2 flyer that makes it cheaper, that's a really, really, uh, the transcendent envoy. If you put commanding presence on transcendent envoy, that's a really great way. That can be an early clock. You can curve that two into three and start beating down, but that can also give you a win condition in the late game as well. So, you know, you just, you need to be thinking about this. How do I push over the top? What is the card in my deck, which is going to take me from a stalled position to a winning position? So some other examples of this might be like the Grey Merchant of Asphodel is a really great example of a good finisher. That card does a really good job of just taking you out of a stall, especially if you have an Omen of the Dead, for example, if you can get it back, uh, or if you can flicker it, that's another really good combination that you can use there. Let's think of some other examples of cards that can really push you over the top. A Furious Rise is a really good one. That's a card which on a stalled board state could just draw you a card every turn and just help to put you over the top of your opponent. A lot of the explore creatures are a really good way that the Typhon, the green Typhon, is a card which can just come back as a 7-7 and take over the game that way. Nylea's Forerunner, giving all your creatures trample, that can actually be the difference between a stalled board state and a board state in which you have profitable attacks. So I've had a lot of games end with, with me or my opponent resolving that card, and it just really helps you push through. Another card which can really help you out is Anax Hardened in the Forge. So this card is a really premium red uh, uncommon. And I think, you know, it, it clearly looks strong, but I think it's easy to lose track of just how many 1-1s this might create over the course of a game. If you have a really long game with big board stalls, and people are killing all of your important threats and stuff like this, you might end up with a serious number of these 1-1 Sata creature tokens. And that can be a really great way to swing a game, which is going long. You know, if if you create like four or five of these over the course of a game, you are in really, really good shape. And especially if you can start sacking them to your Soul Reaper of Mogis, then it's a great way to generate card advantage. Also, the tokens that you get from commanding presence are a great way to generate card advantage with Soul Soul Reaper of Mogis. So these are the examples of like these little two-card combos in your deck, which you need to be looking out for, which are going to help you survive into the late game, keep your engine going, not run out of cards. The worst thing that you can do in this format is get into a top deck war where your opponent has a card advantage engine and you do not. That's like one of the most surefire ways to lose this draft format. So you want to make sure that you just have something going on. Doesn't have to be amazing, doesn't have to be great, but you need a plan. 
that's my kind of big overview of this format. So now let's go ahead and get into the specifics. And I've just got the whole set in front of me here, and I'm just going to scroll down through it, and I'm going to point out the cards which stand out to me as being, you know, needing to discuss. So I'm going to skip a lot of them. I don't need to tell you how good Dreadful Apathy is. I don't need to tell you how good Grey Merchant of Asphodel is. Uh, these are, these, this has already been covered, so I'm going to be picking some cards that are a little bit more niche. I'm in Scryfall, and I'm just going through the colors as they're listed here, so I'm going to start with white. First card I want to talk about is Captivating Unicorn. I've been really, really unimpressed with this card. It just hasn't really... I haven't seen it done good work. I think 4-4 four, for four, 5 is understated in this format. And, you know, the constellation can work on this. But this is what I've found is that the aggressive constellation decks, decks that consistently want to push through damage, just have much, much better things to do lower on the curve. So, for example, the one drop Pious Wayfarer is a card that you can get down turn one. And this is the kind of card which is actually going to really take over the game in a constellation deck and in an aggressive constellation deck. So this is the kind of payoff that you want to be looking for. Um, another card that you might run as well is the Favorite of Eroes. And this is another example of a card where you can drop this a lot earlier in the game and it can do a lot more damage for you. So I just really don't think that Captivating Unicorn is where you want to be in this deck. Now, obviously, if you don't have any other five drops and if you're kind of scraping for playables, then you'll throw it in there. I would not call this like a standard playable. I would not just take any random white deck that I'm playing and think that Captivating Unicorn can fill that slot. In fact, I would even rather run the 3-6 Scry Guy Rumbling Sentry in my average white deck over the Unicorn. The Rumbling Sentry, it scries, so it gives you that kind of virtual card advantage. It really solidifies the board. Six toughness is a lot in this format. So I'm not advocating for Rumbling Sentry. I don't run this card uh, main board in almost any of my decks. But, you know, in a vacuum, I would take Sentry over the Unicorn every time. I'm really down on Captivating Unicorn. I just don't think it's very good. So the next card I want to talk about is Dawn Evangel. This is another card that I think has been overrated largely. And it's not that it doesn't have its place in the format, but I really don't think that this card should slot into the average white deck at all. Specifically, I think that this card is only good... I mean, if you read the card, it is whenever a creature dies, if an aura you controlled was attached to it, return target creature card with converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard to your hand. So A of all, you need to be running a deck with a lot of two drops or less. And B, you need to be running a deck with a lot of auras that are going to go on creatures that are going to die, right? So it's a very, very specific set of stipulations. Like, Dreadful Apathy does not trigger this card, for example. It's like, in order for this to go right, you have to, A of all, you have to have a creature with CMC2 or less in the yard and ready to go so that you can actually get your value out of this thing. Which, you know, that happens sometimes, especially if your deck has a lot of two drops in it. And then, you know, B of all, you need to have an aura which is hitting the yard. So this is best in black-white. So if you have multiple Myers Grasps, you'd probably run this deck in the same deck that you would run Hateful Eidolon in. And, you know, it could be a good combination there. But 
One of my reservations about this deck is that I just can't think of any deck in this format that wants to be running a lot of two drops. Now, of course, the, you know, there are good ones that are useful ones, like uh, like the Lampad of Death's Vigil that I was talking about earlier. That's a great two drop that you would definitely be happy to run in your black-white decks. But that's also not necessarily a card that is going to end up in the yard very much. You don't necessarily want to throw that guy away. That is kind of a sit and hold down the fort kind of a card. And I think a lot of the two drops in this format kind of play that role. So let's give a few more examples. Nessie and Wanderer is a card that you're not particularly excited to throw into the graveyard. That's a, it's a land advantage engine. Either of the legendary demigod two drops, Daxos or Timurit, they're also not cards that you're excited to trade off. And so, you know, like your Transcendent Envoy dies, and that's probably a good combo. Like if you're running multiple Transcendent Envoys and you're putting Sentinel's Eyes on them and, you know, they're getting shot out of the sky or maybe you're trading them for another flyer in combat, something like that, that can be a really good combo with the Dawn Evangel. But it's just a very specific set of circumstances. You need a critical mass of good two drops that you want to run and good enchantments that are likely to hit the yard. So I just think that you, this can be a strong card, but you need to be very careful. And I think people run it more than they should. Next card is uh, the aforementioned Daxos, Blessed by the Sun. Now, I think that some people, originally when people first saw this card, they were very high on it. And then I think public opinion has waned on it a little bit, and I'm starting to hear people be not so impressed with it. And I actually think that it is currently underrated. Uh, maybe not by the average player, but certainly by a lot of the ma the magic personalities that I've been hearing talk about it. And I really don't understand it. I think this card is still very, very strong. It does so many things for you. So first of all, the white devotion is actually a thing in this format. Some of the most powerful cards in the format are white devotion payoffs. Namely, the Daybreak Chimera is just a huge payoff. Being able to drop Daxos turn two and follow it up with Chimera on turn three is just, you know, that's just a back-breaking thing that you can do. So if you can pull that off, it's one of the strongest openings in this limited format. And I would, if I even had one copy of both of those, I would run those in my deck and try to make that a payoff because it's just really strong. Another card that really gets paid off by cards like Daxos is Reverent Hoplite. And this is the one, two for five, which generates a number of 1-1s equal to your devotion to white when it enters the battlefield. This card is real, man. This card is very strong. It's an excellent top end for any white deck, really, as long as you have any kind of devotion going on whatsoever. You know, getting three or more 1-1s out of this is great. Sometimes you get six 1-1s out of this guy, and it just really changes the texture of your mid to late game. And it can often be a winning play, especially if you have anything useful to do whatsoever with those 1-1s. So um, another underrated aspect of Daxos is that he can actually gain you a surprising amount of life throughout the game. So again, especially if you drop him on turn two, by the end of the game, Daxos might have gained you 10 or more life. And that's just really huge in a format where you have a lot of flyers that are coming over and pecking away your life total. When you have Lampad of Death's Vigil, which is chipping away at your life. This can really make the difference in a race. It can just do a lot for you. So yeah, I, I take Daxos very highly. I'm not going to say it's a bomb, 
but I think it's a premium card and it definitely pulls me into white. So yeah, 100%, I am a taker on Daxos. Okay, next card I just want to touch on briefly is Favored of Aroas. I mentioned this one earlier. Uh, like I said, this card is an, a payoff in an aggressive Constellation deck, but this is another card where I think people play it and they, they take it more often and they play it more often than they should. I think it takes a very particular kind of deck to run Favored of Aroas, and that kind of deck is probably one that runs multiple Pious Wayfarer, it probably runs two copies of Sentinel's Eyes, it probably runs as many copies of Transcendent Envoy as it can get. It's a card that hopefully has one or more copies of Commanding Presence at the top end. It's a card that is trying to land Dreadful Apathies to get rid of blockers. It's just, you just really need a lot of enchantments to get your money's worth out of this guy. And even then, sometimes it's not enough. So it's a relatively terrible blocker, unless you're playing, you know, a number of flash enchantments in your deck. And I have just found that overall, and especially in a long game, the favorite of Aroas drops off really quickly. So I do not take this card highly. I do not play many of them in, in many of my decks, and I would encourage you to do the same. So it, it can be bonkers in the right deck. Um, one of the strongest combinations is Satessin Training because you buff its power for the double strike and it gets trample. So if you're running a bunch of those kind of cards in your deck and you've taken some other strong constellation payoffs, then Favorite of Rose can be good. But yeah, I would just be really careful about running this card. Now, the next card is a card that has really grown in my estimation over the format, and that is Flicker of Fate. This card just does everything for you. This card, first of all, is a great way of shrugging off enchantment removal or just dodging any kind of removal whatsoever. So if someone locks down your creature, you can go ahead and blink it with Flicker of Fate, get rid of that Ichthyomorphosis or that Dreadful Apathy or whatever it is. And if someone casts removal, you can flicker your creature in response, which is very good. So that's like plan A with Flicker of Fate, or rather that's the easy path that you can see. Some of the subtler things that you can do with Flicker of Fate is you can really abuse your Enter the Battlefield triggers. And there are so many examples of this in the format. So you can do things like, obviously, if you have a Blight Breath Catablepus, that's a really excellent thing that you can flicker to just basically murder another creature. Like a really strong play, something that you might do in this format, which isn't so obvious, is in a complicated combat, let's say someone's attacking multiple creatures into your board and you have a Catablepus, what you might do is you might make some blocks, block a creature with your Catablepus, maybe a big creature, and then flicker your Catablepus and give another creature minus X minus X, whatever your Black Devotion is, and that will help you win a combat, and it'll also protect your Catablepus from dying that turn. So there's a lot of tricky things that you can do like that. Um, I've lost on the spot and also won on the spot by casting Flicker of Fate on my Grey Merchant of Asphodel. That's just an excellent way to double the effect of that card. There are other things you can do like... like if you have a black omen in play, you can flicker that and get another creature from the graveyard, uh, which is really great. Uh, another thing I love flickering is Illyrios Enraptured. That just gives you an extra 3-2. Again, that can be a great thing to do after someone declares attackers. You can all of a sudden have an extra 3-2 to block. 
I would say in any white deck, if you get an opportunity to pick this up, it's really, really excellent to have either in the main or in the sideboard. You will find uses for it. And I think this is one of those cards where almost any card in the set is good to look at and see if you can get value out of it. You can flicker your sagas as they're about to expire. You know, that basically allows you to get them back, reset them, right? at the end. So it's a great way to just get double duty out of all of your sagas. Now, if you're going to do this though, you have to remember, and I made this mistake in Arena, Arena doesn't necessarily give you the window to resolve this with the trigger on the stack, with the death trigger of the saga on the stack. So if you want to do this, you have to put yourself in full control mode or it's just not going to work. So that's a really important thing to remember when using this specifically with arena so anyway yeah i would just you know go through your deck look at all the cards you know maybe you can use it on heliod's pilgrim to search up another enchantment you know um maybe you can flicker an enchantment and get more constellation triggers off of it so there's just there's almost always going to be something you can do with this card and the worst case scenario is if you're getting beaten down and you need an extra turn you can flicker an opponent's attacker and just remove it from combat it's not what you want to do with this card but sometimes it's what you have to do okay next card i want to talk about is glory bearers i think this is a card which has been a little underrated in this format and it's funny saying that because i think this is the kind of card which will often seduce newer players into playing it thinking it's good it's really tempting right because it makes you think oh all of my creatures are going to get tougher that's really good And I think a lot of newer players will overrate cards like this. However, I think that people have kind of overcorrected and started to rate this card lower than it deserves. And I've been playing a lot of white in this format. I think white might actually be my pick for the strongest color in this format. And I've also been playing a lot of red-white. And I think that in aggressive decks and decks that go wide... I think glory bearers can be very, very strong. So there's a huge difference between getting attacked by a bunch of 1-1s versus getting attacked by a bunch of 1-2s. And this card just, it just clears the bar or like being able to turn all of your 2-2s into 2-3s makes blocks so much harder for your opponent. There are just other things like, for example, it adds an extra toughness to all of your flyers and it might mean that they survive an attack whereas they wouldn't have otherwise. The lining up of the power and toughness of your flyers versus the power and toughness of your opponent's flyers is a really, really big part of this format. And so having a glory bearers out might actually make the difference. So I'm not saying that this is necessarily a main deckable card. I think that you need to really pay attention to what your synergies with it are. But I would not write it off, and I like to have at least one copy of this in all of my white decks uh, for the situations in which it's good. Okay. Let's keep on moving here. The next card I want to talk about is Lagana Band Storyteller. I think this card is very good. I have lost to this card a lot. I think the value of this card goes up a lot if you have enchantments you can consistently get into the graveyard, such as Dreadful Apathy. It's one of the best combinations. I think the value of this card goes up if you have a Heliod's Pilgrim in your deck. I also think this card fits very well into a red-white archetype because you can get a premium card like Eroas' Blessing 
Uh, that's it's such a great card because you want you put it on a creature and then you want to ideally trade that creature off in combat and then you can buy it back with Lagana Band Storyteller and do it again. So I think this card's very strong. Again, I'm not sure that I would call it a premium uncommon, but I think it's just a step below that. And in some decks, it can just be one of the best cards in your deck. Uh, also, if you just have very, very strong enchantment creatures that you think might end up in the yard, then this is another great way to do that. So yeah, I take Lagana Band Storyteller quite highly and... It's not always good. I mean, sometimes if you play it without, you know, for not any value, then it's just a vanilla 3-4, which is really not good. But I've just found that in a lot of games, you can end up getting your money's worth out of this. And the life gain is not trivial as well. So overall, I think Laganaban Storyteller is very good. Next card I want to talk about is Sunmane Pegasus. I think that this card is quite good. Um, I try to run at least one or more in any of my white decks. I think the combination of life gain and the flying, and especially if you can put Sentinel's Eyes or something better on it, this game, this card can turn into something that will just take over the game and win. And again, it just, it does so many things for you. It gives you a way to push through board, board stalls. It gives you a way to gain life. It gives you a flying body to put enchantments on. I just think that Sunmane Pegasus is great. Um, you know, I, and I see why people have reservations about playing it. Like if you slam this on turn four and then the next turn your opponent Myers grasps it and plays another creature, then you're pretty far behind at that point. So I can understand why you would have reservations about running this, but I just think it's strong enough. I have lost enough games to this card and I have won enough games using it where it can just really change the whole texture of a match. So yeah, I definitely wouldn't write off Sunmane Pegasus. I think it's better in this format than it would be in a lot of other formats. Next card is Triumphant Surge. This is the three in a white instant removal that destroys a creature with power four or greater. You gain three life. I think that this is the kind of card that's easy to overrate. I think I overrated it initially in this format. I took it more highly in my pick orders than I should have. And I think what's easy to miss about this card is that it's really a sideboard card in this format. And I know it can feel strange because against the creatures it targets, it's just a premium removal spell. You know, instant destroy a creature and gain three life for four is a very, very good deal. But I've just had so many situations where I'm looking at a board, my opponent has seven creatures and none of them have power four or greater. And that just feels terrible when you have this card rotting away in your hand. It's happened to me enough that it has made me really, really reluctant to main deck it. I almost never do. Um, maybe if, if I'm running a bad deck and I just don't have any removal, then I might include one copy of this just to try to shore myself up. But in general, I would not main deck this card at all. It's great out of the sideboard. You can usually pick it up you know, fairly late in a draft. I would definitely get multiple copies of it if you can. Um, but I would definitely treat it like this card's closer to a plummet than it is to a dreadful apathy. So keep that in mind. Okay, so that's white. I just think white is so good in this format. I think it's an overperformer. When you just go through and you read the cards, it's clear that it's strong. But I think that the way the typical match plays out White just ends up being, I think, more than the sum of its parts. And 
Yeah, I just I end up in white a lot. I've probably had my most success running white X decks. So highly encouraged. I think it's really good. Okay, let's move on to blue. Blue, on the other hand, I've found myself to be relatively unimpressed with this color. It's not that I don't think it can be good, and it's not that it never beats me, but I have found that blue in general has to clear a higher bar than the other colors to be playable in the decks that I've played. And I think part of it is just that there's not a lot of power in the commons. I really think of blue as being like a prince instead of a pauper color in this set. If you have enough of the good blue cards, the, the good blue on commons really, maybe a few rares, that can push it over the top. But I just think that your average blue deck, which is a pile of blue commons and uncommons, doesn't really get there a lot of the time. So uh, let's go through it. I'll, I'll just kind of point out some of the cards that I do and don't like here. Now, the first one on the list, Illyrios and Raptors, is very, very good. So I think this is an exception. This is one of the reasons to be in blue. Um, I would definitely, if I was playing blue, I would pick up as many of these as you can get, even though it's legendary. It'll always pay off. I think this is a great card. So, yeah, that's that's excellent. A card I have not been impressed with is Kalafi, Beloved of the Sea. I think this might be the worst of this cycle. And I think part of that is that it just, it doesn't really synergize with what blue is trying to do. It has a power buff, which, you know, is cool, whereas a lot of the other ones have toughness buffs, depending on your devotion. The problem is that blue just doesn't tend to be an aggressive color. So, you know, a 4-3 for 3, sometimes a 5-3 for 3 is usually not what blue wants to be doing in this format. So I don't really understand Kalafi, Beloved of the Sea. I don't think that it's a particularly good design. And it doesn't pull me into the color the way that the other ones do. Like if I see a Daxos or a Timurit or an Anax, I'm definitely going to be thinking, or Renata, actually, all of the rest of them are very, very good. So I'm definitely going to be thinking about going into that color if I see one of those going, especially mid or late in pack one, um, that all cards I would be happy to first pick. And I don't put Kalafi in that category. So she's kind of a letdown, in my opinion. Another letdown for me has been the counterspell strategy in this format, and a lot of people talk about it being really good, and I just have not seen it pan out. That's Again, it's not to say that it can't be good, I just think that the bar is higher. Like I don't think that you can just put Deny the Divines into your deck and expect to get there. Um, a lot of the threats in this format resolve before turn three, especially if you're on the draw. And there are just a lot of ways to play around counter spells in this format. So there are things that you can be doing in your graveyard. There are plenty of activated abilities on the board. You can be cycling cards with your Oread of Mountains Blaze. Uh, you can be casting your Omen at the end of your opponent's turn. You can be using your mana to crack an omen that you've already resolved to get some scries in. So there's just a lot of things that you can be doing with your mana while your opponent's holding up their Deny the Divine. And so as powerful as it is to be able to exile uh, an escape creature, I just don't think that it's a consistently solid game plan to be trying to build your deck around Deny the Divine. Uh, part of it's just from my anecdotal evidence. I've played like... For example, I did a local draft with my friends a while back, and I just got the nuts blue-black deck. It was a perfect control deck. I had multiple Thirst for Meaning. I had multiple Deny the Divine. 
I had a couple of Illyrios Enraptured. I even had Ashiok at the top end. I had some premium removal. It was a deck which on paper, it just looked like an 8 out of 10, maybe even a 9 or a 10 out of 10 in terms of card quality. And it was a perfect example of the archetype. And I went 1 and 2. And I, I don't, I think I played well that night as well. I think I played to the deck's strengths. And I was just unimpressed. I just ended up feeling like even with some of the stronger cards in the format in the deck, I didn't really think that it was well teched to keep up. So call me not a buyer. Um, let's talk about Eidolon of Philosophy here. I've seen Eidolon of Philosophy on the ladder a lot more than it should be. I think that this card can be very strong. I think the strongest place for this card is in the mirror, if you're playing against another blue deck, or maybe if you're playing against a black-green deck, which is really trying to make the game go long and grind you out. In that case, Eidolon of Philosophy can be a really excellent card. And I've definitely had matches where I had to spend good removal on it, like an enchantment removal or a Maya's Grasp or basically whatever I had, just because, you know, my opponent drawing three cards late in the game could really, really swing things. So uh, it's definitely can be a very, very strong card, but I just see so many people playing this, you know, turn one, Eidolon of Philosophy, and then following up with some aggressive white creature or something. That is not what you want to be doing. So... Yeah, I would say most of the time you should look to not main deck Eidolon of Philosophy, maybe bring it in in a longer matchup. The next card that I have really not been impressed with is Glimpse of Freedom. Uh, this card is definitely not Radical Idea or, or any of the other examples that you can come up with. I just think the, the thing that really kills this card for me is how high the escape cost is. And what I mean by that is five cards is just a lot of cards. So I don't know. I just I feel like the front side of this card is so weak. Paying one and a blue to just cantrip is not a good effect. And then paying three CMC and five cards every time you want to reprise this card from your graveyard. I just think that the cost of putting this in your deck instead of any other playable is much higher than the potential upside that you might get from it. And the problem with this card is that even if you go off with it, like even if you just totally blow the roof off of this card, you're only going to get a couple of extra cards out of it. And you will have exiled, you know, one of your most valuable resources in this format, which is your graveyard. Uh, just it, it just takes such a heavy hit to your graveyard to do this. It's so slow. I'm just not a buyer on Glimpse of Freedom. I do not think it's good. Another card I've been really unimpressed with is Metamize Prophecy. So, okay, where to start with this card? I think a lot of people really like what's going on on this card. It has a lot of pretty words on it. It has a lot of cards on it, uh, words on it that players love. Scry two and draw two cards and all this kind of thing. What you have to remember about this card is that the baseline on this card is scry two, draw two, okay? Now, that's a good effect, admittedly. If you can get that for two mana, a card that, that said one on a blue, scry two, draw two would be a busted card. So I'm not saying that the effect isn't good, but the inconsistency of this card is what makes it such a challenge. For example, this can actually be a pretty rough top deck later in the game. Sometimes it just doesn't really line up where you have anything good to cast on the special turn. 
Well, sometimes you need to cast your cards sooner than that. And I don't know. I think this is one of those cards where players look at it and it's really easy to concoct the magical Christmas land scenario where you always get your two cards off of it. And spoiler alert, if you don't get your two cards off of this, this is a total disaster. I mean, it's just an utter disaster. Spending two mana and a card just to scry two is not where you want to be. So I think that the the very real downsides on this card are much stronger than the potential upsides. I, I'm just not a buyer on this card. I think it it's too fiddly. It asks too many things to go right. And even when they do go perfectly, it's not like it's the most amazing payoff. So I'm really off Metamized Prophecy. Now, I haven't been covering many rares in this review because, I don't know, rares are typically strong and it's typically clear whether it's like a good rare that you're always going to want to take if you're on color versus like a deadly weird rare that you're not going to ever play in draft. But I think Protein Thaumaturge is an exception, so I'm going to talk about it. I think this card is very good. A lot of pros have been really, really hyping it up and saying that it's really, really excellent. And I do definitely think that it is a very strong card. However, I think if you take this card, you really have to know what you're doing with it. You really have to have a plan with it. And another thing that you need to do is is protect it. So, you know, firing up your average draft and having game one against your opponent and just slamming the Thaumaturge on turn two, I think is a very risky maneuver. You know, like if your opponent just slams down a, a red omen and just takes it out or a Maya's grasp or something before you've or, or even worse, you know, if someone manages to ping this down with some incidental effect, then you've just, you've lost one of the strongest cards in your deck for a very, very stupid reason. So if you take Protean Thaumaturge, I think you have to craft a narrative around how you're going to play this card in your deck. And if you do, it can be very strong. First of all, you need strong targets. So for example, if you have some big flyers, then the Thaumaturge can can do a very good job of that. Also, if your opponent has some bomb rares, you know, like if your opponent has a dream trawler or, um, you know, a Nader Kraken, which is another excellent blue card in draft, then, you know, definitely slam your protein thaumaturge, but just be careful about when you do it. So the ideal way to do it is to play it when you have an enchantment, maybe even like an omen of the sea or something ready to go so that you can really capitalize on it right away and just make sure that you're going to get your money's worth out of it another card i've been really impressed by is one with the stars i definitely think this is worthwhile i think that in combination with ichthyomorphosis it is the removal that blue needed there are some edge cases where this can even get around like for example uh, if an effect wants to sack a creature let's say you put this on a creature uh, in the future, someone won't be able to sack it to any of their sack a creature effects. So I think that that's just an edge case in which one with the stars might be even stronger than some of the alternatives like ichthyomorphosis. Also, it not giving your opponent a blocker is very good. So ichthyomorphosis, let's talk about this. I skipped over it before. I think it's properly rated. I think people know that it's a good card. But there are a few things to remember about ichthyomorphosis. So... I actually won a game recently where someone cast Ichthyomorphosis on one of my creatures, and at a later point in the game, I put a plus one, plus one counter on it, 
and it actually became a viable attacker and it ended up being a key part of a go wide strategy which I had concocted to win that match and it worked. And so it's just important to remember that I think uh, a shorthand that people come up with in their mind is that once a creature is ichthyomorphized, it has just been removed from the game. And that's really not true. So you have to consider that people can still put a combat trick on their fish. They can still suit it up. They can still do all kinds of things with that creature. So it's just a really good thing to keep in mind. And it's one of the things that makes Ichthyomorphosis worse than it might otherwise seem. Now, a lot of people talk about Riptide Turtle and they're running this card in their average blue deck. And I'm just not impressed with this card. I think this card is as bad as it looks. I think it's as bad as it would be in any other format. I've just consistently been beating cards that decks that run this card. And um, I mean, you know, if it's the only two drop you have, if it's the only blocker you have, if you have a really strong end game, then cool, maybe you run the Riptide Turtle. But I just, it hasn't been pulling its weight in the matches that I've run, either on my side of the battlefield or on my opponent's side of the battlefield. So yeah, I would be wary of running this card. Maybe if your opponent has like an Underworld Rage Hound and your blue deck doesn't really have a great way to deal with that, then maybe you run the turtle. But in the average long grindy game that this format lends to, the turtle is just really not doing that much for you. A card on the other hand, which is probably one of the best blue cards in the set, and I think one of the main reasons to go blue is Shimmerwing Chimera. This card has just completely overperformed in every deck that I've seen it in. I think this is one of those cards that can single-handedly just run away with the game. I would never, ever, ever pass this card if I was in blue. Um, I just think it's one of the best things that you can be doing in the deck. Just being able to rebuy your omens, being able to trigger Constellation again, being able to get any of your enchanted creatures, maybe your creature has a, a dreadful apathy on it, or even the dream, you know, like if you're able to bounce your Aroas' blessing every turn and just gun down your opponent's team, of course, that's just totally amazing. But I think you just put Shimmerwing Chimera into any one of your decks, and if you have any kind of enchantments whatsoever going on, you are going to start going off with this card. So yeah, definitely premium blue card. One of the best ones in blue in this set. Okay, let's talk for a little bit about Triton Wave Rider. I think this card is a little overrated. I think it's a bit more mediocre than people think it is. It's kind of unfortunate because blue just doesn't really have a lot of good options at the four slot. There's not really any awesome creature like a Farika's. You don't have like a Farika's spawn or something like that, which you can slam it for. And so, you know, in a lot of decks, Triton Wave Rider is just kind of filling out the curve, but it really ends up being a very mediocre creature a lot of the time. You have to do quite a lot of work to make it good. And again, I've just thrown my fair share of Maya's grasps on Triton Wave Rider, and boy, does it feel bad to get your four drop just grasped and killed. So especially if you compare this to like the White Chimera, which is most of the time just a 3-3 flyer for 4 all of the time. And it just really embarrasses Triton Wave Rider. So I think this is one of the key disappointments in blue and just another reason why blue isn't as good as it should be. Now another blue card is Witness of Tomorrows. And I think that this card is overall an overperformer. And this is another reason to go into blue. Again, I wouldn't take this highly. 
but I do think that it's flyers are very important. The games in this format are very grindy, and this card really is a solid answer to both of those things. The scry ability can definitely come in handy. So, yeah, Witness of Tomorrows is a strong card. I would definitely play it in all of my blue decks, and I would pick it quite highly. Okay, let's move on to black. So, black is another contender for strongest color in the set. There's a lot of people saying that black is, in fact, the strongest color in the set. In my opinion, it is tied with white for the strongest color in the set, but definitely just solid. I mean, as other people have said, the black card pool is so deep. There's just so many playable cards in this color. So I'm definitely not going to touch on all of them. You know, your average black common is going to be very good. I'm just going to really focus on the ones that I think have overperformed. Uh, Agonizing Remorse is one of them. I think Agonizing Remorse is really strong in this format. The fact that it can hit the graveyard uh, makes it strong even after your opponent has the cards out of their hand, right? Which is usually the mid-game when your opponent's played out all of their cards is the point at which this card tends to be pretty bad. But in this format, you can almost always find a really good target for it. So... Yeah, I take Agonizing Remorse quite highly. It's definitely not, it doesn't pull me into black, but once I'm in black, I definitely want to have at least one of these in my deck. And it can really pair well with some of the other cards too. Like for example, if you Agonizing Remorse someone on turn two, and then you Aspect of Lamprey them on turn four, that can just be really a backbreaking resource denial strategy. So it also pairs well with Elspeth's Nightmare as well. Um, you know, that's a real one-two punch, right? You go Agonizing Remorse turn two, Elspeth's Nightmare turn three, and then you basically get another Agonizing Remorse on turn four. Obviously, it's not as good, but yeah, I just think that this card is definitely a role player, and I take it pretty highly. One of the few cards in black that I don't think is very good, and that I think gets taken a bit more highly than it should, is Discordant Piper. So it's not that this card can't be good in certain strategies like for example with your soul reaper of mogis this card can draw you two cards and that's pretty strong so i'm definitely not saying that you should never play it but i see people running this in their random black decks or just treating it like a role player and i don't think this card's good enough to go in your average black deck so yeah i would definitely only run this card if you have strong sacrifice synergies if you have a really compelling reason to want to make more bodies, then then it can be good. But I would say nine times out of ten, you probably shouldn't put this card in your deck. Elspeth's Nightmare, like I mentioned earlier, I just think this is one of the best cards in the set. I think this is a premium uncommon. This is the kind of card that would pull me into black. It's just been such an overperformer. There are games when this card will destroy your two drop and then pull your best removal card out of your hand the next turn or force you to use it on just some random nothing creature of yours so yeah i think this card is fantastic all three modes are really important exiling an opponent's graveyard can often make the difference between them having laser plays versus not so or it it can just it can turn their farika's spawn from a strong threat that they would be able to escape to maybe a card that they're now not going to be able to escape until the late game. So yeah, Elspeth's Nightmare. I I take this really highly. I would put it in any black deck. I would run multiples. I think it's really good. Next card is Enemy of Enlightenment. I would chalk this up to the card that 
I lose to the most, which I feel like I shouldn't. I really don't think this card is great. I mean, some of the time it just gets Maya's grasped or they just throw their enchantment removal at it. And that feels really bad when your six drop gets taken out by a one or two mana removal spell. However, I've just lost to this card enough to know that it can be strong. So yeah, I, 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 this is one of my hardest cards to rate. I don't think it's good, but I do think it's strong, and boy, I, I haven't gotten to a point where I run this card most of the time. I'm still not really picking it in draft, but there might come a time when I've just lost to it enough, and I kind of throw up my hands and say, all right, I guess I need to start running this card, because, you know, a 5-5 five, five for Flyer, or 5-5 five, five Flyer, or even a 4-4 four, four Flyer can just really make the difference in this format. One thing to be aware of is if your opponent is able to draw cards at instant speed, then it makes Enemy of Enlightenment a lot worse. So definitely, if you are running this card, make sure you sideboard it out in the matchups where it's not going to be good. If you're playing against a blue deck, I would highly consider not running this card. Another card which I see people run more often than they should is Grim Physician. And it's not that this is a bad card, but again, I think of this as being very much a sideboard card. Um, I would only main deck it in the very, very most sacrifice of sacrifice decks, and even then, I might not. I mean, a 1-1 one, one for 1, even with a decent die's ability, is just not really where you want to be. If you think of the biggest blowouts that you could get with this card, you still had to spend the entire card of Grim Physician to get that blowout. And, you know, maybe it kills a creature that wasn't going to die otherwise, or maybe it makes combat a little tricky for your opponent, especially if you have like an instant speed creature sack outlet. But all of that said, I just, I still, at the end of the day, you have to spend an entire card on this and it's just not particularly good. So yeah, I would only bring in Grim Physician if my opponent is playing a lot of X-Wands this is a very, very good sideboard card if your opponent is running multiple loathsome chimeras. If your opponent has two of those on the board and you have one of these, it's kind of a nightmare for them. So that's an example of a matchup where I might board it in. But in general, I don't think that this is worth a card, and I would probably only run this if I had multiple if I had multiple Soul Reaver of Mogis. That's probably the only situation in which I would run this card. Next card I want to talk about is Nyxborn Marauder. Now, this is just the 4-3 for two and a black, uh, two black black vanilla creature. The reason I want to bring this up is just that this is one of the cards I most frequently flip-flop around when I'm deck building. This is not a good creature in this format. Like, 4-3 vanilla for four just doesn't line up well at all in this format. Of course, the reason that you play this card is your black devotion synergies and that's what makes it so difficult for me is like if i have a cat and or i'm running gary you know then i'm definitely more likely to want to run this card but i have to say like this is the card which is most often on my chopping block for the 23rd card in my deck and i still haven't really come down on how i feel about it so i guess this is less of a strategy call by me and more of just a saying that this is one of those cards that I'm still having trouble evaluating. If your opponent has good enchantment removal, like for example, I was playing against a white opponent that had Heliod's Intervention, this is one of the first cards that I would board out if I see a Heliod's Intervention from my opponent. I mean, it's just such a blowout to get this thing destroyed by enchantment removal. So... 
definitely, I would always consider this card as a cut in my deck unless I was like a mono black devotion deck specifically. Yeah, not a great card. Still don't know how I feel about it. Farika's Libation is a card which has grown a little bit for me. I've gotten wrecked by this card enough times that um, I've started considering running it in my black deck, whereas I was fairly low on it at first. One of the best places to play this card, in my opinion, is in decks in this format, which are trying to do a lot of Voltron-y things. So if you notice that your opponent is playing the kind of deck which is putting multiple enchantments on the same creature, then the value of Farika's Libation goes up. If you... If you have a decent amount of other removal in your deck, and if your opponent is really running a smaller number of creatures that they're trying to leverage through, you know, buffing them up with enchantments, then this can be a really, really powerful way to combat that. I'm not saying that you should pick this card highly. Like, I don't think it's premium removal. I think it's good to have at least one copy in the sideboard. And yeah, I would bring this in against any deck which is either running a lot of big creatures or trying to make that creatures really, really big and valuable. As soon as you see someone cast a white omen, or if they have any other kind of go-wide strategies, or I would never run this in a black-blue deck that played multiple copies of Ichthyomorphosis. If you're playing against an opponent's deck and you've already got an Ichthyomorphosis on their creature and then you cast this card, it's just a disaster. So pay attention to that. Not a place you want to end up. Next card I want to talk about is Temple Thief. I think that this card is easy to write off in this format as being just a vanilla 2-2 for 2. But I've played multiple decks that have a really, really hard time with this. I've also played against multiple decks that successfully aggroed me out with this card. There are some decks where, you know, you look down and your deck has like 10 enchantment creatures in it. Or, you know, you're you're enchanting a creature strategy is a big part of your deck. And there are board states in which you just have nothing that can block this. And, you know, in a board stally format, having a creature that is basically unblockable can be really, really strong. So I've definitely brought these out of the sideboard. I've played against some slow blue decks, which had mostly enchantment creatures lower on the curve. And I remember one game in particular where I just, I played, I played a Temple Thief turn two. I played a Temple Thief turn three. My opponent, the first three or four creatures were enchantment creatures and I just killed them. So always keep an eye out for that. This card can actually be quite strong. Okay, next card is Timurit, Chosen from Death. This card, uh, just believe all the hype on this card. I think this card is fantastic. I think it's one of the best cards in the format, quite frankly. There have been so many games that I would have won if my opponent didn't have this card. I mean, this card just eats up your escape creatures or any of your escape cards. It gains your opponent life. It's helpful in any black devotion strategy. I just think Timurit is awesome. I rate it very highly. I think it's the best card in this cycle in Limited. And yeah, I would never pass up a Timurit in any black deck. I think it's a fantastic card. Let's move on to red. Now, I think a lot of people don't rate red very highly in this format. I personally have really enjoyed playing it, and I've had a fair amount of success with it. So yeah, I I don't know what to tell you. I think red is really balanced in this format. I like it a lot. My red decks have frequently gone all the way. So I'm a fan, personally. And I'll start right off the bang with with a banger. Anax, Hardened in the Forge. I think this guy is fantastic. 
one of the best in this cycle. Um, it's just so strong. I mean, getting a bunch of satyrs over the course of a game can really help you turn the tide, like I said before. One thing to note about this guy, if you play the second one out and you legend rule them, you will get four satyrs out of the deal. So... You know, that's just a trick. Like, if you end up... Like, with some of these other demigods, if you have multiples, it punishes you. You don't really get much out of the deal. But with Anax, you can just drop the second one. Maybe you attack with the first one, and then you drop the second one. And you just get four extra 1-1s. One so, that's kind of insane. And in general, you know, any creature with power 4 or greater dying gives you two tokens is... That is really, really strong. So... Anyway, I think this card is an auto-include in any red deck, and definitely a card that would pull me into red. I think it's just fantastic. Again, just goes really well, like any Soul Reaper of Mogi's deck, even a Lampad of Death's Vigil deck. This guy's perfect in the red-black sacrifice, and of course in the red-white go-wide deck as well. Um, even though I tend to think that that deck is less strong than the sacrifice deck overall. I just want to quickly note Dreamstalker Manticore. I think that this card's very playable. I think it enables the four power synergies really well, and the one damage to any target can be relevant. If you team this up with a red omen, then you can lightning bolt something, which is really strong. I guess it's lightning strike, two mana. So yeah, anyway, I think the Manticore has been a little bit of an overperformer. I mean, 4-2 is just, it's not a great stat line anyway you look at it, but uh, I think there's enough synergies here that it can really end up being good. Next one I want to talk about is Final Flare. I think I think people play this card a little bit less than they should. And it's not that it's necessarily a great card, but I think if you have if you have any kind of token makers in your deck, if you have Anax, if you have the White Omen, if you have commanding presence, these are all things that I think could really encourage you to run Final Flare. Another cool use of Final Flare is if you're playing against a deck with a lot of enchantment-based lockdown removal, like if your opponent shows you multiple Dreadful Apathies, for example, then Final Flare can be oh, oh, um, Ichthyomorphosis, right? So if your opponent is running multiple of either of those cards, then Final Flare can be a really fantastic sideboard card to bring in against them. Basically a free premium removal spell at that point. So... Yeah, I, it's not that I necessarily take this card highly, but if I see them wheeling around the draft, I would take this as a sideboard card over, you know, a lot of normal playables. And I've I've definitely brought this in out of the sideboard for various matchups. Or in some matchups, like for example, if my deck is just full of dorky creatures and my opponent shows me like a handful of really, really powerful creatures that I'm going to have a hard time beating, then I might just bring in Final Flare, even if it's card disadvantage, because, you know, sometimes, like if your opponent plays like a 3-4 flyer and you can't answer it, you're just dead. So sometimes it's even worth going down the card just to get more hits in. Not ideal, but, you know, it's a thing you might do. I want to talk about Flummox Cyclops. I think that this card is, it's properly rated. I think people know it's not that great. I just want to say I see a lot of people running Flummox Cyclops in decks they shouldn't be. I think Unless your deck just wants to turn sideways every single turn, and unless you're trying to abuse the four power synergies, there's basically just no reason to bring this in. I think the one exception is it could be a good sideboard card if your opponent's on the like suit up one flyer kind of a plan. 
Sometimes you have an opponent who just wants to get one flyer down and henpeck away at you the whole game. And in a situation like that, the Cyclops can be good. Now, of course, if your opponent has two flyers, you're out of luck. So you have to be careful about that. But um, this card can be good in exactly that situation where you have a board stall and your opponent has one flyer and they're just trying to get over and get in those last few points of damage. So the Cyclops can really slow the roll when that happens. So it's a role player and... You know, a 4-4 a for four, four, four in a really aggressive deck or in a 4-power deck is totally fine to play, but you just need to make sure that you have a reason to run this guy. It's not just like a, it's not just like a standard playable in your red decks, I don't think. Let's talk about Impending Doom. This is a card which I was a little bit lower on in the beginning of the format. I don't think it's necessarily a great card, but it can really turn your creature into a threat that needs to be answered. And it can really turn the tide in a race. Like I've had plenty of games where it's like I'm playing a normal match of limited against someone else and they have their creatures and I have my creatures. And suddenly you'll slam impending doom down on a creature and it's like, oh, oh gosh, like now this is really something that needs to be dealt with. So especially if I have flyers in my deck and especially if I missed out, like if I didn't pick up a copy of commanding presence or one of the more premium auras, which this is definitely not. Um, then I might run one of these, and especially if I uh, have a uh, Iliad's Pilgrim in my deck, I would be a lot more likely to include one of these. Just sometimes being able to search up a really big power buff enchantment can just push you over the top. And to be honest, it's not actually a bad play to play the Pilgrim and then slam Impending Doom straight on it. I mean, you've built yourself a 4-5 must attack every turn for 6 mana, which isn't amazing. But sometimes that's just what you need to get it done, you know? And especially if you if you have a couple of good threats already and you just need to go a bit wider and put on some more pressure, then I, I've done it and it's been quite successful the times that I've tried it out. Again, you know, the, the best case scenario is you put this on your lifelink Pegasus or something like that, and it just ends the game very quickly. One thing I do want to note is that the the three damage that you take when the creature dies is really real. I've I've had, like, I was playing a game today, actually, where I was playing Impending Doom and it was winning me the race, and then my opponent killed my creature, and then it ended up losing me the race. So it is a very swingy card. You have to be prepared for that if you're running it. Okay, let's talk about Eroas's Blessing. Now, I don't you don't need me to tell you this is a good card, but after playing with this for a while, I my opinion has really risen around this card and I really think it's one of the main reasons to be red. If I see an Eroas's Blessing going around early, it might be one of the things that pulls me into red. I just think this is such a strong card. So, why do I like it so much? One of the reasons is that it's one of the easier removal spells to get in the graveyard. So whatever you put this on, you can frequently kind of turn a creature from not being a threat into being a threat. One of my favorite things to do is land a flyer on turn three and then slap down a Rose's Blessing on turn four and, you know, kill their best thing. And now you have a suited up flyer that's kind of threatening. And then your opponent is often kind of priced into killing it. Like they usually have to deal with a flyer, you know, with a plus one, plus one buff at some point in the game. And then, you know, this is this is why you run Lagana Band Storytellers so that Eros's Blessing ends up in your graveyard and you can fetch it back. So anyway, I just think Eros's Blessing is a really versatile card. I think it's really great. In my red-white decks, I've often taken a tactic of, especially if my opponent doesn't have mana open, I'll just slap Eros's Blessing on a 1-1 token 
And if I if I want to go wide or if I just want to have another more relevant threat on the board. So it just gives you a lot of versatility. If you have a big creature, you need to make a little bit bigger to get an attack in. Or if you just want to go a bit wider. Or if you want to increase the chances of Arosa's Blessing ending up in the graveyard again. These are all reasons why you might actually put it on a smaller, dorkier creature. Uh, if you want to go really deep, like if you have a plan to recur, you might even find a way to sacrifice it. Like... Uh, for example, if you put it on Scofos, if, if you have a Scofos war leader and a Lagana band storyteller in your deck, you know, you can just sacrifice a token anytime and get this back. So anyway, these are just some things to think about. I was also running a deck with the, uh, with the rare, 3-2 haste, which summons things back from your graveyard. And I managed to get a couple of Eros's blessings into that deck, and it was really disgusting. So this is, I think, like Dreadful Apathy, this is the kind of spell where it can often be really important to get it into your graveyard because you can find ways of recurring it. So anyway, Eros's blessing, I think it's easily one of the best removal spells in the format. Obviously, it doesn't kill really high toughness things, so you've got to keep that in mind. But I think the versatility combined with the power buff, combined with the ease of getting it into the graveyard, I think are just all such strong recommendations for this card. I'm a big, big fan. Next, I want to talk about Irreverent Revelers. Now, this is obviously not a main deck card. I never run this main deck. I don't think I ever have. But this is a surprisingly relevant card out of the sideboard and um i don't see enough people siding this in or at least i've almost never had it sided in against me and i don't understand why pretty much every time i've run it in the sideboard it's done fantastic work for me so you know just being able to to destroy an artifact stapled to your 2-2 for basically one extra mana is really amazing so um if your opponent is running the liar that's a this is a really great thing to run. Other things I've killed with this include Altar of the Pantheon, really solid card to take out. Usually if an opponent's running that card, it's for a reason. Yeah, Entrancing Liar is a great target for this. Shadow Spear. Um, I've seen a fair number of Shadow Spears in the format, and you know, that card will just totally wreck you a lot of the time if you can't deal with it. And so Irreverent Revelers out of the sideboard is a really great way to deal with that. A thundering chariot i have taken out faced that one time uh even wings of hubris you know some people bring in wings of hubris and that card's not very good but in certain matchups it can be quite relevant and so bringing in an irreverent revelers can really make the difference there so anyway i try to pick up one or two of these and it's usually not hard in the draft they go last no one wants them so it's just really good to have a couple of these in the board. They can be surprisingly relevant, and they have been one of the best cards in my deck against, you know, certain opponents running cards like the Liar or the Shadow Spear. I mean, such a such a clean answer to the Shadow Spear. Okay, uh, next I want to talk about, this is probably one of my favorite cards so far in this set, and it's currently my nomination for the most underrated card in the set. And that is O-Reed of Mountain's Blaze. Maybe it's Oread. I don't know how to pronounce that. But anyway, O-Reed of Mountain's Blaze. This is a heck of a two-drop. So uh, why is that? My high opinion of this card really has to do with my overall opinion of the format, which is that this is a very grindy format. And it frequently comes down to top decking. It also frequently comes down to really needing an answer for like a suited up flyer for example 
And a card like the Oread is just so good at doing this. So let's unpack this a little bit. The, the Oread, it's a, a one and a red mana for a one three. And you can pay two and a red mana as many times as you want and discard a card to draw a card. So anyway, um, why, why is this so good in this format? This is just such a long and such a grindy format. And when, when you come down to top decking or when you reach this mid game where you have six lands in play or something like that, this rummaging ability becomes increasingly more important. And the way that I like to think about this card is that whenever you have this card in play, Every single card in your hand now has cycling two and a red printed on it. And that's a really powerful effect. Cycling is just a very, very powerful effect in general. We've seen that time and time again in formats that have the mechanic that it can just be really, really strong. And this is not too far over par for what you'd pay. A lot of cards generally have cycling two on them. And so cycling three, it's, it's a much bigger cost, but it's not an insurmountable cost. And it's just what this means is that in your deck, like for example, I've played a lot of fairly low curve red white decks in this format. And I've had times when I'll start with an O read on turn two and I'll play my fourth land and I'll just stop playing lands after that. Now, of course, you know, you have to do this knowingly, it's not just like a good default to do. But in certain matchups, and especially when I think that attrition is going to be really important, and if I think that it's more important for me to play a relevant spell every turn than to double spell every turn, then what I might do is I might just start sandbagging lands as soon as I, you know, as soon as I have enough lands in play that I could successfully cast any of the spells in my deck. I might just start sandbagging them and, you know, maybe play them out strategically. Like if I have a turn where I think, oh, I just need one more mana to double spell. So I'll go ahead and play this land out. But it just makes me think a lot more carefully about how I play my cards. And it really makes me evaluate, you know, I I assess the value of each card in my hand in each play that I could possibly make. And if the game state dictates that you know, maybe I have a 2-2 two, two for 2 in my hand, which is just not going to add to my board. It's not going to do anything in the current situation. I'll just cycle it. Or, you know, maybe I've hit six land drops and it's just I just don't need to play more lands for the rest of the game. Then I'll start cycling my lands away. And one of the things that I love about this card, which I think makes it so much more versatile than some of the other kind of card advantage or card filtering engines in the format, is that you can do this as, as often as you want. So with a Soul Reaper of Mogis, for example, you have to sacrifice a creature every time you do it. And that's a pretty steep cost. And, you know, if you've gone wide, like if you have a bunch of tokens sitting around, then it's fine, you know, and, and it draws you cards. So that's really great. But with the O-Read, it's like, you know, you can just keep cycling cards until you hit the one you want. So I've had multiple times when I, you know, had an O-read in play with six or even in some cases nine mana. And I, I would just cycle two or three cards in a turn, especially, you know, for those times when you're hitting a land pocket. I, I mean, I've had so many games that have gone long where I'll maybe draw five lands I'll draw four lands in my next five cards, right? 
And so sometimes I'll just take a turn where I spend all of my mana just cycling away those lands until I hit my relevant spells again. And it's just, it's been such an overperformer for me. The O-Read is such an overperformer. I now, I want one in every red deck, absolutely every red deck. I try to really prioritize picking up one in every draft. Uh, in my aggressive decks, I only want one because, you know, you can't veer too far off your plan. You need attackers, you need high power, you need creatures that are more relevant on the board. But, um, you know, aggressive decks, aggressive decks often run out of gas. And it can be really, really important to just have a card which will keep you in it because especially like I've been saying, this format's so grindy. It's just really important to have something to do with your mana and something to do with your dead cards later in the game. And the O-Read is really the answer, in my opinion. Um, like I've said before, I think that this card is actually a better card advantage engine than Furious Rise. I've run them both a lot. I really like Furious Rise. I've built around it a lot. I've really tried it. It's a great card. I'm not saying it's not. But um, I have actually found my O-Reads to perform more consistently in that same deck than my Furious Rises do. And I think that that says a lot. You know, Furious Rise is kind of a it's kind of a late game card anyway. You often don't get to turn it on until the mid to late game. Sometimes you do, you know, if you have a nut draw or whatever. But yeah, so I'll I'll definitely play one O read in my aggressive decks, and sometimes I'll even run two in like a more dirtily deck where maybe if I'm splashing or maybe if I have some kind of big finish I'm working towards, uh, then I think it's totally fine to run more than one. So in conclusion, I, I really like this card. I've gotten, I've used it more in my red decks than I use my Soul Reaper of Mogis. I want to stress it's, it's not actual card advantage, it's just card selection. But um, I fe it feels like I've drawn more cards with the O-Read than I ever have with a Hateful Eidolon or with really any of the other card advantage engines in the format. So Anyway, yeah, O-Read, it's my pick for most underrated card in the format. I think this card's really important. It's really relevant. Uh, it really is a card that helps red stay relevant because it's a color that can otherwise kind of run out of gas pretty quickly. So yeah, anyway, I think I've made my point there. I, I pick it really highly, and I think it's one of the reasons red is decent in this format. Okay, next... Uh, Skofos Maze Warden, I found this guy to be an overperformer for me. I really like the versatility. I like how it can take out a big creature. I also like how if you have a Furious Rise, you can just bump this guy up to get to your four power. Or if you have a Nessian Horn Beetle, you can give this guy a little bump. There's just a lot of versatility in this card, and I think it earns its place in the deck. I'm usually happy to pick him up. And it, you know, it just presents a difficult question for the opponent because if they block it you can buff it to kill that bigger creature and if they don't block it then you can get up to six damage in so anyway yeah i just i think the maze warden's really solid i would say the same with the scofos war leader it's another card which i think has ended up being a bit of a better performer than it looks uh just the combination of being able to sacrifice, you know, if you have a sack outlet, this can be this could, this can be one of them. Um, I've had a game where I had a deck that wasn't at all really built around sacrifice synergy, but I happened to be running three Scofos War Leader. It was like a Furious Rise, Go Big kind of a deck. So I was running three of these in it, 
And I had a match where my opponent had a couple of really massive flyers that I was having a hard time dealing with. And so I just brought in some portents of betrayal from my sideboard to run with the war leader. And, you know, it's not like the dream combo. You usually want like a lampad or, or something else if you're going to be doing your, your steel and sack plan. But in a pinch, it worked really well. And, you know, especially if your opponent's running some big threats later that hit later in the game and you can, you know, maybe take a little while to get your combo set up, that can be a really strong thing. So just remember that the war leader is just kind of quietly another sack outlet that you can add to your deck, which can sometimes help to push you over the top. It's also like, again, for example, if you have a creature with ichthymorphosis on it, or something like that, and you attack with the war leader, it can be kind of hard for your opponents to deal with it because, you know, each each creature you sack gives you plus one, plus oh. So yeah, if, if you have a creature that's locked down in an enchantment, or if you've gone a little bit wide, you have some tokens, it can make blocking the war leader pretty difficult for the opponent. That threat of activation is really real. And occasionally it can push through the final points of damage that you need. So yeah, I, I definitely am happy to run at least one war leader in most of my red decks. And in my decks that care about four power, I'm happy to run more than one. Also in matchups, if my opponent's kind of going big, or or maybe if uh if my opponent seems like a little bit weeny, then I might try to outscale them with the war leader. So anyway, I'm a buyer. I think it's a solid playable. The next card I'm gonna talk about, not so much. Stampede Rider. This card has really unimpressed me, even in the four power decks. I just think, boy. So I've noticed that this set has a lot of two threes for two. I mean, two threes for three in it. And most of them tend to be fairly underwhelming. And I think this one is no exception. I mean, if you can have this consistently powered on, then it's great. You know, a, a three four trample for three is a great deal. But I just find that quite often that's not the case. It's not turned on. And when it's not turned on, it's just really not much to look at. I think it can just be one of the worst cards in your deck. So I wouldn't run this in any except the most heavily focused four power decks. And here's, here's my critique of this is that if you are running a deck with a lot of four power creatures in it, then like an extra 3-4 trample on the board I don't think is going to really swing the game. I think your opponent's going to be more concerned about your 4-plus power creatures. So again, it's not to say that this card is unplayable, but like it's no Nessian Horn Beetle. You know what I mean? That card is just twice as good as the Stampede Rider is. And I've played very few games where I felt like Stampede Rider really earned its place in the deck. I've seen a lot of opponents run this card when they shouldn't be. And I've been very disappointed in running it myself. So yeah, I would generally avoid it. Next, I want to talk about Underworld Ragehound. I think that this card has been controversial. I think initially people rated it quite high. And then I think the ratings came down a bit. And I still think that this card is quite good. I still will run one or more copies in most of my red decks. And yeah, I definitely think that this card is a role player. So let's just talk about some of the things that it can do. One of the things I like it for is it's just good for keeping an opponent's board clear in the early game. People are generally priced into blocking it. 
you know, with their, you know, whatever their turn two or even turn three players. So it'll almost always trade for something. And if you're in a matchup where, you know, your opponent is just playing a lot of high toughness blockers, you might side it out. Uh, or you might not. You might just be more careful about how you play it. I mean, it escapes as a 4-2, which is a much more relevant body than a 3-1. And that 4-toughness is really key. It can punch through quite a lot of creatures in the format. So, yeah, in an aggressive deck, I definitely wouldn't skimp on the Rage Hounds. And just, you know, there are some things that you don't really think about much with the Hound. Like, for example, if you escape it, it can actually make a decent blocker for a turn. Or even, you know, if you're under a lot of pressure, you can put this down and it's, you know, of course, it's not a great blocker after the first turn you play it because it's going to be attacking. But sometimes just having the option to bring it back from the graveyard can swing a race. And sometimes your opponent forgets about it, you know, so like you make an attack, you have the Rage Hound in the graveyard, your opponent blocks, you know, with what's on the board. And then post combat, you reanimate the Rage Hound and all of a sudden your opponent realizes that they don't have that that their attacks aren't as good as they thought they were so yeah i i wouldn't underestimate the hound i think it's quite good Uh, another thing to think about is that it is a four power creature enabler when it escapes which is really strong for a two mana creature so like if you're playing a red green deck with nessie and horn beetle or whatever you can you know you're, you're essentially your two drop can come back from the graveyard and enable that four power synergy so Overall, I think this card is quite strong. One thing that I don't think is good, and I've I've seen this going around. I don't know where this idea came from or who's been spreading this, but I think it's just very, very poor. Where I see a lot of decks running one or two range hounds and running the wings, the wings artifact. And, you know, like the joke's kind of clear. It's like, you know, you... Uh, you slam down your Rage Hound, you give it wings, it flies over, it kind of mitigates the needing to attack every turn thing. Ha ha, you know, I've, I've made myself a nice little flyer tactic. And I don't think I've ever lost to those decks. So that is really not the way you want to do it. So I, I just want to discourage you from that. I think if you need to resort to that kind of a trick in your deck, then your deck is really not very good. So, you know, maybe occasionally, like in a sideboard strategy, it might be what you decide is going to push you over the top. But I would strongly discourage against just running this in general and thinking it's a good idea. It's just not. There are people are doing more powerful things in the format. It's probably not going to work out most of the time. Okay, so that's red. I think red is underrated. I really like the color. I've had a lot of success with it. I will continue to draft it and... I hope I will continue to have a high win percentage with it. I wouldn't sleep on red. All right, let's move on to green. So the first card I want to talk about is Destiny Spinner. I think this card is really, really, really good. That's not news. I think a lot of people think that it's good. A lot of people talk about how strong it is. I'm not sure that I want to like jump on the hype train and say that it's super amazing. But it's, I mean, it's hard to imagine getting a better deal for two mana. And the the part of this card that really pushes it over the top for me is the activated ability. I think the the smallest creature I've ever made with that activated ability was a 3-3. And I've actually had boards, like I had a game 
when I had a Nessian wander out. And I ended up with 10 lands on the battlefield. And I was able to make two five fives a turn with the Destiny Spinner. That's serious, man. Like taking what is essentially a, a fairly useless resource at the end of the game, which is, you know, your, your fifth or your tenth land, and turning that into a relevant threat that's like a 4-4 four, four or a 5-5 five, five, is pretty amazing. And you can do this on blocks. You can do this on attacks. It has trample and haste. So, you know, anyway, I just, yeah, I think that that activated ability is really strong. I've definitely had this card swing games for me. I've had games where I just, I couldn't have won it without the Destiny Spinner. And being able to get that out of your two drop is really something. So anyway, this is a, I think it's a really strong card. It's a card that would definitely pull me into green. It's a card that would signal to me that green was open. Pretty much wouldn't pass up on the Destiny Spinner, and I'd run as many as I could in my green decks. I think they're great. Okay. There's a lot of green cards here that I'm kind of skimming over, and that's because I think that they're mostly correctly rated, or I think that people's general assumptions about them are, you know, fairly accurate. One that I want to talk about is Elysian Caryatid. I think that this card is a really powerful card, and I think as a result of that, I see more people playing it in the format than should. So let's unpack that a little bit. If you're playing a deck with multiple Caryatids in it, you really, really have to have a good reason. First of all, in order to play multiple of these, you probably want to have a four-power synergy going along. So Loathsome Chimera and Elysian Caryatid is a really great combo. You can play the Caryatid on turn two, you can play the Chimera on turn three, and then get another two mana out of your Caryatid. And another thing to remember is that this can add two mana of any one color to your mana pool. So this can actually help you for a double off-color splash. And we saw an example of this at the Players Tour, where a player was playing a deck with Dream Troll. It was, a, it was an off-color Dream Trawler deck. They actually did not have any white mana in their deck. But they used their Caryatid and their Loathsome Chimera, and that's how they got their Dream Troll out. So something like that is, that's, you know, that's quite an innovative way to use the card, and I think it can be correct. But I think just putting a bunch of Caryatids in your deck because you think that it's a good card, I think is not the right way to do it. You just, you need a reason. You need a reason to run the Caryatid. I wouldn't just put a Caryatid in my, you know, like two color deck just because I, for the lols, or like I just want the extra mana or something like that. I just, this format's too grindy for that. Like you need your cards to be relevant. You need your cards to not just get pinged down. Like if you slam a Caryatid and then your opponent just Mogi's favors it, like that's such a bad exchange for you. I mean, you can't be doing that. So, just think very carefully before you put the Caryatid in your deck. It's not an auto-include in green at all. This isn't a Lanoir Elf, all right? That's what I want to stress. You would run a Lanoir Elf in, in most limited decks. This is not one of those, so don't mistake the two. Okay, next card I want to talk about is Nessian Horn Beetle. Um, I think this card is correctly rated as being very good. I think it's one of the stronger cards in the format. This is, it's just consistently a threat. 
I mean, a lot of people call it Tamagoyf, which, you know, is a little bit hyperbolic, but it's really, really good. I mean, this, this guy can often just get out of control if your opponent doesn't deal with it. I've had plenty of boards where I removed the horn beetle instead of the four or five drop that was enabling it because the horn beetle was the bigger threat. So when your two drop can be relevant on turn two and then relevant at any point in the game after that and be like the threat, which is threatening to be the biggest creature on your opponent's board is really amazing. So yeah, I pick horn beetles highly. I basically don't pass them if I'm in green. I'll play basically as many of them as I can get if I have any kind of of four power synergy going on in my deck. They're just great. Next card I want to talk about is Nessie and Wanderer. I think this card is really good. And I have heard a number of people recently kind of talking trash on the Wanderer, saying it's not that good. And Man, I just don't really understand it. If you get even one free land off of this card, I think it's a great deal. Like, a 1-3 is a good stabilizer. It'll trade for your opponent's, you know, Rage Hound or your opponent's whatever, which, of course, it's not an amazing deal, but sometimes you just need to keep the pressure off. So it jumps in front in a pinch. It's a pretty good double blocker. And then... This thing will often just draw you like four or even five lands over the course of a game. And I've had plenty of games in decks that weren't even particularly enchantment focused, just like, you know, some random green black deck or whatever, which would just draw, yeah, three to five lands off of this. And I just wouldn't miss a land drop for the rest of the game. And something to think about is like, especially these green black decks, for example, they often end up being very, very mana hungry. So some things you might want to spend mana on are escape creatures. You know, the Typhon escapes at seven mana, which is a lot of mana, right? It's a little bit hard to get there until you're either in the really late game or you have an enabler like the Nessie and Wanderer. Uh, another thing you might want to do is have mana available to pay for your Lampad or your Scholar Grove Dancer to get more cards in your graveyard. So there's just a lot of activated abilities. There's a lot of uh, reasons, uh, you know, maybe even you're cracking your Omen to get the Scry, something like that, or you just want to play an Omen on your opponent's turn. There are a lot of things that you can end up wanting to do with your mana in these decks, or, you know, maybe maybe you're ramping out more lands so that you can get your Destiny Spinner online, right? Anyway, this thing is, uh, it can be a fixer. It can help you find your off-color land. It is definitely a ramper. And I think something that's kind of underrated about this card is just think about how many two-land hands you would want to keep in Limited, right? And sometimes the Wanderer is the thing that can just get you to your third or your fourth land. And that can be really key. It can it can make the difference between playing on curve versus not. And I just don't take, I, I don't take that for granted in limited. You know, limited is hard. Like your mana bases are hard. Sometimes you don't find your second color. You just, you know, in a lot of limited games, you'll need help at some point along the curve. And the Wanderer really helps to ensure that you get that, right? So you can just slam this on turn two, and then maybe you have a Scholar Grove Dancer, or you have an O-Read of Mountains Blaze, or you have, you know, some some of these other, or you have a Daxos that you play on turn, you know, I guess Daxos is a bad example because that's a 
double white card. But anyway, there's just there's plenty of two and three mana enchantment creatures that are really role players that you would play in most decks. Like the Soul Reaper of Mogi is a great example. You'd just run that in, you know, just about any green deck. I mean, uh, any black deck, it's a solid three drop, usually finds a home in a deck. And uh, just curving a Nassian Wanderer into one of those is really great. It helps you get your Catablepus on time. It helps you get your Farika spawn back out of the graveyard on time. So yeah, I'm a buyer on Nassian Wanderer. I think this card is really great. I would run this card in a deck with as few as six enchantments. And what you don't realize is that you get there really easily. So like in your average black deck, maybe you have like a Lampad of Death's Vigil, you have a Soul Reaper of Mogis, you have a Maya's Grasp, maybe you have a Nyxborn Marauder, you have a Warbriar Blessing, maybe a Satessan Training, you're already there. So it's really not hard to get enough enchantments in your deck that you're going to get one or a couple of hits off the Wanderer. So anyway, I just... I don't know. I think that this is a great fit for limited in general. You wouldn't play this in constructed unless you had some kind of specific ramp strategy, but I just think that the mana is bad enough in limited that you can use the help. And especially, you know, green decks and especially green black decks just end up being pretty mana hungry decks. And so you're often happy to consistently hit your land drops and make sure that you have plenty of your colors sorted out. So anyway. Nessian Wanderer, great in my book. Another card I found myself running a lot is Nylea's Forerunner. This is not an amazing card by any stretch, but I think it can do what you often need in this format, which is that it can just give you something that gets over the top. It can give you that push that you need to finish the game. I've just had a lot of games end with either me or my opponent slamming a Nylea's Forerunner, and it can really open up options for you that weren't available before. And remember with Trample, basically all you have to do to figure out whether you have a winning attack with Trample is you add up your creature's power on board, you add up your opponent's toughness on board, and as long as they don't have anything tricky like First Strike or whatever, you can just swing all. And, you know, you can just, the math is easy to do that way. If you say, you know, my opponent's at five, I have 12 points of Trample and they have, you know, six points of toughness, and it's just over. Like, the game's just over. So, uh, of course, you know, if they have a removal spell or whatever, maybe not. But it's just trample. Having all of your creatures have trample can really make a big difference, especially in a format like this. And especially since in green you're often running these big dorks, like the Voracious Typhon, or again, like the Farika Spawn comes back as a 5-6, stuff like this. Even if you're unfortunate enough to be running Nyxborn Colossus in your deck, then Nylea's Forerunner can make the difference between that card being relevant versus not. So yeah, overall, I'm a buyer on Nylea's Forerunner. A card I'm not as much of a buyer on is Nylea's Huntmaster. I think that this card is mediocre, to put it mildly. It's just not that good. For example, with the Nyxborn Marauder, there are reasons to run that because you might want the Devotion, but here you're not really getting any of that. The momentary buff often doesn't matter that much. This is really a, a ground blocker heavy format, so your opponent just usually has a blocker. I don't know, I've just been unimpressed with Nylea's Huntmaster. I don't think I've run it in a single one of my decks ever, and uh, I'm, happy. I'm happy with that. Nyx Herald, on the other hand, I think is a good card. I've run this plenty. I've found it to be quite relevant. 
this is a two three this is of, of the two three cycle that gives you something the two three for three cycle i think the nyx herald is one of the better ones uh it just hits consistently it's very easy to have an enchantment creature or enchanted creature i mean you can turn this thing into a three four so it's a three four for three and that's just basically a good deal and then you can make something else bigger if you want so i would definitely run this card i think it's great let's see what's next Let's talk about Renata called to the hunt. I think this is just an incredibly strong card, one of the better ones in the cycle. A reason to play green. Just having all of your creatures come back with plus one plus one is amazing. Even your escape creatures come back with an extra plus one plus one in addition to whatever else they got from escaping. So Renata's great. It's like it's almost a bomb. You know what I mean? Like if your opponent slams this on turn four, you've got to deal with it because. Otherwise, it's just going to gradually take over the game. All of their creatures are just going to be a little bit better than yours. They're all going to be above the curve. And that's a bad place to be. So yeah, Renata is, is a must-kill, basically. Let's talk about a card which is not so good, which is Satessan Skirmisher. I think this card is garbage. I think it's one of the worst cards in the set, to be honest. And... If I have to put one of these in my deck, or God forbid more of these in my deck, then I think that I have gone astray in the draft. This is not the constellation payoff you want. I've just, it's like when my opponent plays one of these on turn two, I breathe a sigh of relief. I am just not impressed with this card overall. Uh, two, one, two ones in this format are just not good. They have to do something really, really useful in order to justify themselves. And the Satessan Skirmisher, I think, is just not that useful. And, you know, it's like, even if you did it, like, yay, you, you know, you managed to play an enchantment consistently. Okay, great. Now you have a 3-2 instead of a 2-1. It's not like you really made out like a bandit. You know, it's not like the Nessie and Horn Beetle, which keeps its counters, right? So, yeah, I'm unimpressed with the Satessan Skirmisher. I think it's mostly just a 2-1 that doesn't do much. And I'm off it. I don't play these. Can't remember the last time I lost to one either. Let's talk about Scholar Grove Dancer. I think this is one of the most surprisingly playable cards in the format. I find myself playing this card a lot. So it just it fits well with your enchantment synergies. It fits well with your graveyard synergies. Definitely can be something that gives you an extra turn in a close race. There's plenty of times when my opponent would have killed me or I would have killed my opponent if not for the grave dan the Grove Dancer. And, you know, I mean, it's just a 2-2 two, two for 2, so you do need synergies. You need to have either an escape sub-theme or an enchantment sub-theme. But in either of the decks that do, this card is a role player. And, yeah, I am happy to run one in most, if not all, of my green decks. I think they're just fine. Voracious Typhon, obviously one of the strongest commons in the format. This is a reason to play green. I would pick this very highly. I think it's fantastic. This is also a reason to put cards like the Omen of the Hunt in your deck, because paying seven mana is a lot, and you want to try to figure out a way to get there more quickly if you can. So a card that synergizes really perfectly with Voracious Typhon is Relentless Pursuit. Um, which I think is generally a playable card. It feels bad if you whiff on either side of it. It's hard to imagine whiffing on both sides. But yeah, it, it's it's really not good when you don't hit. 
But definitely for the graveyard synergies, it's still worth playing because even if you only get one hit off of it, you're still buffing your graveyard. And I think in most cases that makes it good enough. Obviously, your deck needs to be enough focused on escape that that's a boon for you, but it's not hard to do that. So this helps you on both sides, really, of the Voracious Typhon. It helps you fill your graveyard to get it back, and it also helps you find a land, which will help you pay that 7 to bring it back. So, uh, yeah, if I'm running one, or definitely if I'm running a couple of Typhons in my deck, I want to make sure that I have like a Nessian Wanderer strategy going on, or I'm running a Green Omen, or just something to help me get to that Typhon a little sooner, because... Seven is a lot of mana. It's really, really expensive. So that's green. I think green is fine in this format. I think it's a, it's a fairly synergistic color. You know, I, I feel like green is a color that seems quite happy with most of the other colors in the format. It just seems to play nicely with all of the themes. It's, it's good for the four power theme. It's good for graveyard themes. It's fairly decent at constellation. So, yeah, I, I just think that this, it's, it's a very good, it supports a lot of what the other colors want to be doing in the format. So I'm a fan of green. Okay, so that's all of our single colored things. Now I'm taking a look through the gold colored cards in the set, and I really don't have much to say about them. And one of the reasons for that is just that most of them are very powerful. And it's quite clear why they're powerful. They're just, they're very good cards. And so, you know, if you're running the colors they are, you'll basically play all of these cards. So, I, I mean, that's, that's basically it. With maybe the exception of Aliar of the Unknown uh, and Dalakos, Crafter of Wonders, those are two kind of oddball cards that you may not want to end up running in your deck. Calyx Destiny's Hand is, is a very, very powerful card, but you definitely want to be in a green-white enchantment deck, and, and that might not be what you're going for. But I think most of the rest of these, as I'm scanning them, are just good, you know? It's just like, great, if you're in those two colors, nab the card. You'll be more than happy with it. Let's talk about Altar of the Pantheon. This is clearly, you know, I see these showing up in decks. I think people probably play them a little bit more than they should. But I think it is a card that can have its place. And so let's explore why you might want to run Altar of the Pantheon. First thing, of course, is if you're doing a lot of splashing in your deck, which is a thing that people have been doing in this format because it's slow enough, then Altar of the Pantheon can be a good choice. However, there are better choices if all you want to do is splash. So I think in order to run Altar, you need to either be heavy devotion so maybe you picked up like maybe you have two gray merchants of asphodel and two blight breath cataplepuses then i might consider running altar of the pantheon but generally just for the devotion strategies it's not enough so i might also run one of these if i have like one or two really strong splashes and I'm running the Catablepus. Or maybe I have the Reverend Hoplite in my deck and I'm also splashing. Something like that. Or, you know, like I had a deck which had two Catablepuses and I managed to pick up a Heliod Suncrowned. 
And so in that deck, I ran the Altar of the Pantheon. But I think generally you want to avoid running this card unless it's checking both of those boxes for you. Or like I said, if you just have like a, you know, if you just have a very, very... I, I think the Cat of Leapus is a really good example of a card where the Altar helps it in both ways. It's an expensive card. And sometimes I've, I've had a lot of games where I've had a Cat of Leapus sitting in my hand the whole game and I couldn't cast it because six mana is a lot. It really is. So, yeah, if, if I had, like, a lot, if I had maybe two, definitely three, if I had three Catablipuses in my deck that I wanted to play, I would definitely run an Altar of the Pantheon. But just really think about it, because you do have better options. You know, Traveler's Amulet is probably a better option than Altar of the Pantheon if you just want to do your average normal splashing. You know, there's also a fair number of good splash enablers in the various colors. An omen can even help you get there. You know, just card selection, card filtering can help you get there. Cards like Nessie and Wanderer, Ored of Mountains Blaze can help you get there. So yeah, avoid running the altar unless unless you really need both sides. Uh, Entrancing Lyre is really good. I don't think I need to explain why. It's just a card that scales with the game and uh, sometimes can even double tap down when you need it to. So, yep, it's a great card. I wouldn't, you know, I would take the Lyre over most cards in the draft. And it's just a good pickup at any time because it's colorless. It fits into any deck. So, I mean, an aggro deck is just as happy to take this as a control deck is. I think it's a great card. And uh, if my opponent's playing one, I'll definitely try to bring in my irreverent revelers to to deal with it because it's just very good. Let's talk about Wings of Hubris. I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the show. This card, okay, so this is another one of those cards which gets played more than it should. It can be really tempting to want to just, you know, have a deck full of low-quality beaters and just suit them up with the wings and try to get there. That is not what this card is for, in my opinion. I think you need a reason to play Wings of Hubris. So what are some of those reasons? A great example I can think of is Nessian Boar. If you pick up a Nessian Boar, which is a rare, so it's not going to happen that often. But Wings of Hubris goes up a lot when you have Nessian Boar because that's a 10 power flyer, right? Which is just amazing. I mean, that's just going to win you the game on the spot. And especially if your opponent is already at low life, then you can just slap Wings of Hubris onto your boar and just make it unblockable and that's a guaranteed kill so that's a really good example of why you might want to bring this in i've also i've had a couple of matchups where my opponent was relying really really heavily on flyers and especially relying on like low power flyers that weren't particularly special but they were just trying to get through and and get in for the win and I brought in Wings of Hubris in that matchup, and it was a really good sideboard card. Especially if your opponent doesn't have a lot of removal, if attrition isn't so much a part of your matchup where you know you need every card to be a threat or an answer, then Wings of Hubris can be really great. My opponent ended up having to use artifact removal on Wings of Hubris in that matchup multiple times because it was basically the best card in my deck against them. 
So yeah, I I think it's a good sideboard card. Just if your opponent's really trying to abuse flyers and you can't keep up, or if you have one or more key threats, which really you know a, a card on the power level of Nessian Boar, which you just need to get through, then Wings of Hubris might be worth running in a deck like that as well. By and large, don't play this card. It's just not going to be worth a slot in your deck. I just want to talk about the temples really quickly. A lot of people recommend running the temple if you have, even if it only covers one color in your deck. So it's basically like a half color temple. So for example, you'd you know run Temple of Abandon in your blue-red deck, and it only gives you the red mana, you're not using the green. But the scry land is just still valuable. Getting a free scry is worth the tap land in limited decks. And so, yep, these are great picking up. And you'll play them in Constructed, so it's another reason to grab them as well. Lastly, I want to talk about Unknown Shores. This card, I think, is quite solid, actually. I've used this card a lot, and it's been a fine splash enabler, especially for a card like um, Dreadful Apathy, for example, which is already a competitively costed card. So spending an extra mana, it makes that card a bit worse, but it's still worth running, right? So if Unknown Shores is the fixing that you can find to get your Dreadful Apathy out in a non-white deck, then I think that's entirely fine. Same thing, like, if you're running a bomb like Dream Trawler or something, okay, it can hurt playing that card at 7 mana instead of 6, but you'll do what you need to do to get that card out. So an Unknown Shores can be a way to do that. So I think that this card deserves its place in the format. I think it's fine fixing. I'll, I'll definitely pick one up if I'm short on the fixing and that's what I need. So lastly, I wanted to talk about the Omens. This is a cycle which, you know, is kind of ubiquitous. People play them in every color and they're really good. And I just wanted to kind of give a quick rundown on them and my power ranking on them. So let's start with my favorite omen. I think that the blue omen is the best one by far. I think this is born out in Constructed too. You see the blue omen just getting a ton of play in Constructed. It's just a very good card. I mean, Scry 2, draw 1 for 2 is great on the front side, and then Scry 2 on the back side is just really fantastic. It also, it playing at instant speed is more relevant in blue than in any other color. You can leave up your counter magic and flash in your omen. So yeah, I think that Omen of the Sea is great. Uh, it's unfortunate that blue as a whole isn't particularly strong in this format because, you know, it's my favorite omen. It's, it's definitely the one I would most want to play. I think tied for second, we have the black omen and the red omen. They're just both very solid. And depending on what your deck wants, one might be better than the other. I mean, of course, you know, if you're in red, black, whatever. But they just, they're both very on plan for their colors. I think spending two for a shock that also you can crack to scry is totally fine. It can also give you the card selection you need in a red deck because that can be especially important in red. doesn't typically have a lot of card advantage built into it. The Black Omen is, again, a really solid card. One of the better things you can do with it is buy back your Catablepus, for example. So Catablepus and the Omen 
work very, very well together because the omen can help with your devotion to make the Catablepus more powerful. And bumping up the Catablepus from two to three is a huge upgrade, or from three to four. So sometimes you're kind of priced into doing that. And the best case scenario is you play a Catablepus, you kill something, you trade it in combat, you buy it back with the omen. You know, you play your Catablepus again with the omen on the battlefield, it adds to your devotion. You can hit something higher up on the chain. So, fantastic combo there. Great combination with Grey Merchant of Asphodel. But it really, anything that has a good enter the battlefield ability is going to push it up in your rankings. And then, of course, if you have a bomb, like a Nightmare Shepherd or something like that, then it's just more reason to run the Omen to make sure that even if your opponent deals with it, you can get it back. So, yeah. Red and Black Omen, I think, are tied. I think they're both very good. I would run the first copy pretty much always in my decks in that color. Now the green omen, it's not that I think the green omen is bad, but I wouldn't just run the green omen in all of my green decks the way I would the blue, the red, or the black one. I think that you need a reason to run the green omen. I think just rampant growthing followed by a scry, I don't think is worth the cost if you don't have something to do with that mana. So the Green Omen is a great fixer. It's probably the best fixer if fixing is specifically what you're needing because it gets you exactly the land that you need and you get the extra scry out of it. And so it's a little bit expensive, but I think that it offsets the cost of running it in your deck very well. And it does actually ramp you, you know, it puts the card onto the battlefield, so it gives you an extra land drop, which I think is strong. So definitely a great splash enabler, but if you're just running like your random green-white deck or whatever, and you don't either have a splash or you're not trying to hit seven mana, for example, if you're if you're not actually trying to get a ramp payoff, then I don't think it's correct to run Omen in your green deck. So I've definitely seen plenty of decks playing the Omen just because they're green and it's a green Omen. And I don't necessarily think that that's correct. I think you want your cards to be doing a little bit more for you. And, you know, it's it's a long... Fo- the, the games go long in the format and so oftentimes your ramp ends up not mattering in the mid to late game. So, yeah, not worth spending a whole card on. I think you want to be splashing. Then lastly, uh, in my opinion, I think the White Omen is the worst one. I think it's just because going wide is not particularly relevant in this format. It's not that it's a bad strategy or that it can't get there sometimes. But I have just found that, again, you really need a reason to play it. I don't think that you can just slam the White Omen into any of your white decks and feel like you got a good deal out of it. It's not terrible. Like, none of them are terrible. None of them is a disaster. If you're short on playables, it's fine to run any of them. But I've just been unimpressed with the White Omen in a lot of cases. Now, I would definitely bring it in if my opponent has a lot of two ones or three ones or four ones, right? So if your opponent's running the Rage Hounds or the, you know, the Green Chimera, then I would definitely side it in. Uh, If you have good things to do with your tokens, if you have sacrifice synergies, then I would side them in. If you're really committed to a go-wide plan, then I would put them, I would main deck them. But I I don't know, I just, 
you just you have to be really really committed to the go wide plan i think you have to have reverent hoplite level of go wide or nx level of go wide in order to to really make it worthwhile and i you know other people might disagree with me on this but i think unless you explicitly need the constellation trigger or you really want the tokens or whatever then i'm really not high on the white omen i don't think it's great so anyway that's gonna wrap it up for today again i only talked about the cards that i felt like i had a specific opinion on and uh, i'd love to hear what you think so if you disagree with me or if you have any of your own opinions a great place to share those would be in the discord you can find the arena craft discord in the show notes just always going to plug that i would love to see you in there you can also reach me on twitter at arena craft pod and that's a great place to find me on most platforms and yeah thank you so much for listening to another episode this one went long and it is late so i'm going to bid you good night thanks again for listening and i will look forward to catching up with you later